Our sermon passage this morning is from 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24, which you can find on page 1022 of the Church Bibles. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who uh, sorry, uh, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed, our, we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. What makes you feel guilty? What makes you feel condemned? Guilt is often a response to an awareness or a feeling that we have failed to meet a standard. Sometimes that's a standard that's within us. You have certain expectations of yourself. You have set certain goals. You like to think of yourself as a certain kind of person. And so when you fail, when you are revealed to be less than you want to be, you might, as a result, feel guilt and shame. You might condemn yourself. Other times, that standard that you fail to meet is outside of you. Maybe your parents placed unrealistic expectations on you to be successful or, or to care for them obsessively. And so you can never be good enough. You walk around with an ever-present sense, ever sense of shame. Maybe you feel pressure from society uh, to be thin, to be pretty, uh, to look young, to live a carefree life that, that seems glamorous. And you look at your body, which is normal, and you look at your life, which is just normal, and your family and your kids, which are just normal, and you feel like somehow you've fallen short. You feel like you're not enough. You feel condemned. A lot of people would say that religion is a source of guilt and shame. You see God's standard of holiness and righteousness laid out in the Bible. You hear passages like the one that we thought about last week, ones that say that anyone who makes practice of sinning can't be God's child. And you look at your life and you think, well, I don't, I don't know if I'm clearing that bar. And so you feel shame and guilt and condemnation. And no one likes to feel that way. Uh, shame is a terrible, burning feeling in your chest. 
And so what do we do? If we are plagued by feelings of guilt and inadequacy, how do we get rid of them? Well, one therapist has some suggestions for you. This is from an article on Talkspace, an online therapy provider. There are certain things, according to this particular therapist, you can do to get rid of your feelings of guilt and shame. So let me just give you a few. One is to be open about your feelings. So honestly own up to the things that make you feel guilty. Another is try to find ways to make amends. So if you've done things that are wrong, try to find ways as best as you can to right those things. Uh, you can volunteer. Uh, helping others can give you the sense that you're making up for those things of which you're ashamed. Uh, another is distract yourself. Uh, guilt can be crippling, and so try to find activities that take your mind off it. Uh, another is yet practice self-compassion and self-forgiveness. Right, don't beat yourself up. Don't be so hard on yourself. Remember that you're worthy of forgiveness. Now, some of those ideas might be helpful. So if you've done something wrong, it's certainly good to try and make up for it as best you can. It's good to volunteer. It's good to help others. Those things might make you feel better, but I, I can't help feeling that it's a bit like giving a painkiller to someone with a gaping laceration. Those things might mask some of the symptoms of guilt and condemnation, but they don't really seem to address the larger issue. They don't address the, the cause of our guilt and shame. So if you're feeling that way today, if you are in any way ashamed of yourself, ashamed of things that you've done, feeling condemned for who you are and for all that you're not, well, the Apostle John wants to talk to you. He's actually got good news for you. Let's start out at the end of the passage that Shelby Joe just read for us. There in verses 19 to 20 of 1 John chapter 3. Listen to what John says here. 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. You see the issue John is addressing. How do we know that we are, in his words, of the truth? How can I have confidence that I'm one of God's children? In light of all my sin, in light of all the ways I've fallen short, in light of the fact sometimes I look at my life and I think maybe, maybe I'm not God's child. How do I find reassurance when my heart condemns me? Notice John doesn't say, if your heart condemns you, or if our hearts condemn us. He says, whenever. Right? He understands that Christians are going to struggle with this, with feelings of guilt. Our hearts are going to condemn us, he says there in verse 20. I find that oddly comforting. Right? When we feel ashamed, when we feel guilty, when our hearts condemn us, we're not suddenly off the pages of Scripture. We don't come to the Bible and be like, yeah, no, it's not in there. I'm, I guess I'm completely off the map. No, John anticipates that this is going to happen. It might not be good, but it's not unexpected. And thank God, John has a solution in that circumstance. So again, if you're here today and you feel guilty, you feel condemned, John has good news for us. It's there in verse 20. 
He says, whenever our hearts condemn us, and then he gives us two pieces of information about God that address that situation. First, he says, God is greater than our heart. I know that many of us struggle with a sensitive conscience and our sin plagues us and we live under a cloud of guilt and shame. I'm not enough. I don't do enough. Listen, again, God's word has good news for you. It's not some nonsense about self-love and self-care. It's not really news about you at all. It turns out it's news about God himself. God, John says, is greater than your heart. God is greater than your heart. If you struggle with a guilty conscience, write that on your mirror. Put it on the lock screen of your phone. Record yourself saying it and make it your ringtone. If you walk around all day feeling guilty and condemned, it's because you're looking at you and not at God. John says God is greater than your heart. Notice he doesn't say, you're amazing. Forgive yourself. You're fantastic. No, no, John doesn't see the solution to your guilt and your shame really beginning in you at all. He wants to talk about God, and he says God is greater than your heart. The picture here is something like a courtroom. There's you, you're the defendant, guilty of all kinds of weakness, fault, failure, sin. And then there's your heart, the prosecuting attorney. Maybe this is something like your conscience, right? But it levels charges against you. It condemns you. And then John introduces the third party in this little courtroom drama, God, the judge. And he says, It's God's verdict that matters, right? The prosecutor always thinks the the party on trial should be condemned, right? He always thinks the accused is guilty, but it really doesn't matter what their opinion is. It's the judge's opinion that matters. And so John says, look, God is the judge. He's greater than your heart. It's, It's his word that matters about you, not your heart's word. What God says goes. The second piece of information there in verse 20 is that God knows everything. So God's greater than your heart and God knows everything. Now on the face of it, that sounds terrifying, right? You're thinking, that's why I feel so guilty because I know that God knows everything. But John seems to think that that information should, again, verse 19, reassure our hearts before him. John seems to think that God's authority... The fact that it's his word as judge that stands and God's omniscience, the fact that he knows everything, John seems to think that that fact will will calm our clamoring hearts. And so what does that tell us? Well, it seems that the God who is our judge, the God who is greater than our hearts, the God whose word ultimately overrules every argument and accusation of our heart, it seems that, that that God must be disposed towards mercy. He must be quick to forgive. He must be prone to pardon all our sin. It seems that the God who knows everything also knows our weakness. He knows our good motivations, even when they don't always translate into action. He knows our good intentions. And he's merciful towards us. So listen, because I know that some of us 
really need to hear this. All of us need to hear it. Some of us really need to hear it. Right? A lot of us would live with more joy, more freedom, and more boldness if we actually believe what John says right here. God does not want his children walking around all day feeling guilty and condemned. He does not want you to sit back and let your heart beat the tar out of you. What he wants for you is there in verse 19. He wants you to know that you are of the truth, that you are his child. And he wants your heart to be reassured before him. So if your heart's telling you that the really honorable thing to do is to feel badly about your sin, if your heart's telling you, look, it is presumptuous to go to God with all this talk of boldness and confidence, that your sin means that God is, your judge is really mad at you, that he's at least disappointed in you, that he's barely tolerating you. Well, then tell your heart the truth. God knows everything, and he's greater than your heart. Your heart doesn't get to win this conversation. What God wants for you as his child is to be reassured, calm, quiet, confidence in his presence like a child with their father. God wants you at peace. He wants you to enjoy his forgiveness, his love, his mercy. He's greater than your heart and he knows everything. The goal is for you to know that you are his child, that you are of the truth. Uh, look there in verses 21 to 22. John says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. You see, if you can learn to tell your heart the truth, that God is greater and that he knows everything, if you can believe that so that your heart doesn't condemn you, John says, then you have confidence before God. And again, not a confidence rooted in my goodness, right? Not a confidence born out of the notion of self-forgiveness, but a confidence rooted in God's eternal, unchanging, greater-than-my-heart goodness. It's a confidence rooted in the fact that God is so merciful, so loving, so kind that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins and to rise from the dead in victory over sin and death and everything that should make you feel guilty and condemned. He's faithful and just to forgive your sin, as we read earlier in John's letter. He's given you an advocate, Jesus the righteous. And so you're not condemned. There's no, nothing to be gained from beating yourself up. You come to him boldly because he's told you to come to him boldly. And look, when you come into God's presence with boldness and confidence, John says, whatever we ask, we receive from him. That is to, be say, you, that is to say, you can be sure that when you come to God in prayer, asking for what you need, you will receive it. Now, to be clear, John isn't saying that God's obligated to give you everything you ask for, right? He's not saying God is some cosmic ATM machine that you can make any withdrawal anytime for whatever you'd like. But he is committed to you as a loving parent is committed to their child. He is committed to not withholding from you any good thing. He is committed to working everything in your life 
towards the good of making you more and more into the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with that truth in mind, we pray with boldness. We pray for the things that we need personally and as a church family. We pray boldly for the salvation of our family and friends, for the spread of the gospel through all nations, for the help that we need to change and grow in all the ways that are necessary. God's greatness, his knowledge, his love means that our hearts can be assured before him and we can have great confidence when we go to him in prayer. Look at the last thing John says there in verse 22. He says, we have confidence before God and we receive what we ask for because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now again, that sounds like it might be a bit mercenary, like God's basically buying our obedience with treats. But I think this is the key to connecting what John says here to the rest of the book and particularly with the rest of our passage that we're going to think about this morning. What John has been driving at in this letter is assurance. He wants clarity. He wants confidence. Right? And he's been weaving together three strands of evidence that give us confidence that we belong to God, that we are his children. John's been trying to sort of weave together, get together uh, three sort of sets of data that if you see these things present in your life, you can have real confidence that you are God's child. There's first the test of a proper confession of faith, right? Confessing that Jesus is Lord, the Son of God, come in the flesh. We saw that in chapter 2. Lord willing, we're going to see it again in chapter 4. Right? The, the second test is the test of obedience. This is what we saw back in chapter 1. We saw it last week. Lord willing, we're going to see it again in chapter 5. And then there's also the third test, the test of love. We've seen that in chapter 2. Uh, we saw it last week at the very end of verse 10, and we'll plan to see it again in chapter 4, and that's what John wants to talk about with us today. Right? We see all three of those things reflected there in verses 23 to 24 of chapter 3. So he says, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he's commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So John says, this is how we know that he, ab that he abides in us, that he lives in us by his spirit that, that's been given to us. He says, the spirit of God leads you to believe in the name of the son, Jesus. So that's, that's the first test, the doctrinal test, the confessional test. He says, the spirit of God leads you to keep his commandments. That's the obedience test. And he says, the spirit of God causes Christians to love one another. That's the test of love. If you have those three, three things present in your life, you can have confidence that you belong to God. Your heart can be assured in his presence. And so with the rest of the time that we have in our passage for this morning, we want to dig into what John says about love. Uh, we want to hear what John says in terms of Christians loving their brothers and sisters. But again, you have to be careful with, with John not to mishear him. He is not telling us to love one another, as he's going to in this passage. He's not doing that to condemn you. He's not doing that to say, look, you're not loving enough. Get with the program. No, John understands that if you're a Christian, God has put his love in you. He's put love 
for your brothers and sisters in your heart. And so what John wants to do is not condemn you, but he wants to point it out to you. He wants to show you how to recognize it in your life. He wants you to cultivate it and inflame it so that you can have confidence and assurance in God's presence, so that you could have joy and so that you can pray boldly. And so to that end, let's look at two things that we see in this passage. First, let's see the necessity of Christian love. So why is it that this is one of the three tests John gives us? Why is it that John says the presence of of Christian love in your life is strong evidence that you are God's child? And then second, let's, let's look at the shape of Christian love. What does love really look like? So first, the necessity of Christian love. Why does John say that love for other Christians constitutes solid evidence that we belong to God? Well, the answer is that love for one another is inextricably bound up in the gospel message that the apostles proclaimed. Look there in verse 11. It says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is just like what we read back in 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. In fact, we're just about at the middle point of John's letter. And what we're going to see and what we've been seeing uh, is that as we go along, reading 1 John is like climbing a spiral staircase. Right? We keep coming back to the same place, just at a slightly higher elevation. And so John wants to revisit an idea that he's already introduced back in chapter 2. He wants to take a deeper dive on the connection between the gospel message that the apostles proclaimed and the love that Christians have for one another, for their brothers and sisters in the faith. The apostle summarizes the point there in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John says, here's the heart of love. Here is the event by which love is known. The standard by which all love must be measured and understood. Jesus, he laid down his life for us. We were lost. Under just condemnation because of our sin and rebellion against God. Right? In terms of last week's passage, we were all, by nature, children of the devil. We were his captives. We were his loyal subjects. But in his great love, the Son of God took on human flesh. He became one of us in order to save us. And he saved us not merely by teaching truths, not, not merely by healing people of diseases, but he saved us by giving up his life as a sacrifice for our sins. He gave up his life in our place as our substitute, taking the punishment that we deserve. So Jesus, who deserved nothing but glory and honor and praise for all eternity, he saw our need and he endured all of that, that humiliation, that suffering. He endured all of that for our sake So John points to that great act of love and says, there it is. You want to know love? There it is. That's the thing. That's love. So put that in the context of what we saw last week in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 to 10. Remember last week we saw that children 
resemble their parents. Right? You can tell whose child someone is by the way they live and the way that they love. We saw last week, God's children love what God loves. The devil's children love what he loves. And so here, John tells us that what, or John tells us what it is, or more accurately, who it is that God loves. God, it turns out, loves his people. He loves the one for whom Jesus laid down his life. Right, in the words of verse 16, he loves us. The devil, on the other hand, hates God's people. As we saw last week, he seeks to, to harm and to deceive them at every point. That's what John shows us here, right? God's children love God's people. They love one another because their father loves one another. The devil's children hate God's people. And so the apostle launches in our passage into a discussion of love and hatred there in verses 12 to 15. So we read there, starting in verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So John starts talking about hatred. And he points us to the example of Cain back in Genesis chapter 4. So if you know that story, Cain and his brother Abel were sons of Adam and Eve. Cain murdered Abel in a fit of rage. John tells us that Cain was of the evil one. Right, that's important. John's been trying to help us discern what marks off those who belong to God versus those who belong to the devil. And so here, John is telling us that Cain is an example of what we saw back in verse 10 last week. Someone who is evidently a child of the evil one. He says, you want to know what it looks like? It looks like Cain. How do we know? Cain hated his brother. John asks there in the middle of verse 12, why? Why did he hate Abel? What was it about Abel that so stoked Cain's anger and hatred? Was it that he wouldn't stop humming an annoying tune? That's what seems to make my kids hate each other, right? <laughs> did they have a fight over a girl? No, John tells us there in verse 12 that it was Abel's righteousness. That's what Cain hated so much. Cain's deeds were evil. Abel's were righteous. And so Cain hated him and murdered him. John draws two lessons for us from that fact. He says there in verse 13, first, do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. Right? John is connecting the dots for us. If the world lies in the power of the evil one, as he says in chapter 5, verse 19, and if Cain is a representative of the devil's approach to people who practice righteousness, then we can expect that the world is going to hate anyone who loves the Lord, who follows Jesus. And it seems that John wants us to know that so that we won't be surprised. Notice he doesn't really expect that we're going to be able to fix it. He just wants you to know it's going to happen. 
He doesn't want you to be taken off guard, to be shocked. He doesn't want you to panic when the world hates you. He doesn't want you to think that things have gone terribly wrong when you're opposed by the world. Right? When we read about Christians being persecuted and killed in North Korea and Nigeria and India and Iran, well, we understand why. When we see our own culture becoming increasingly hostile to Christians and Christian belief, we understand why. If your coworkers or your family have rejected you because you follow Jesus, well, don't be surprised. Take comfort from the fact that God has told you in advance that this is what's going to happen. The second thing John has for us here is to show us that hate is incompatible with being a follower of Christ. Right? That's not too hard to understand. Look there at the end of verses 14 and 15. We read this. He says, whoever does, not abide, uh, who, I'm sorry, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John's echoing here what Jesus taught back in Matthew chapter 5, that hating someone in your heart is the same kind of sin as murder. Murder is simply a, a very evil version, an extreme version of hatred. But they're, they're really both cut from the same cloth. And we know that murder is a sin worthy of condemnation. John says no murderer has eternal life abiding in them. Right, John, he's not trying to prove that. He just assumes that you're obviously going to agree with that. Right, whatever having eternal life abiding in you looks like, it's got to look like not murdering people, right? John isn't saying here that murderers can't be forgiven, that they can't be restored to God if they repent of their sins and trust in Christ. But he's saying that on their own, on the face of it, a murderer, someone who murders people, isn't someone who has God's eternal life abiding in them. And so John's saying if hatred and murder are related... And murder makes it obvious that you don't have God's life abiding in you, that you're not his child. Then he says, look, God's children can't be characterized by hate either. It's incompatible with, with Christian belief, with really being a child of God. So John talks here about the hatred that the world has. He doesn't want you to be surprised, and he wants you to see how incompatible it is with being a Christian. Now, look there. That's what John says about hatred. Let's look and see what he says about love, uh, beginning there in verse 14. At the beginning of that verse, it says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Okay, whoever does not love abides in death. That's, chapter four, uh, that's verse 14, right? Hatred is characteristic of spiritual death. It says there in verse 15 then how do we know that we've passed from death, right, from the realm of hatred and murder, into life? How do we know that we've, we've gone from the realm of the devil who hates God's people into the, the realm and the family of God who loves his people? Well, John says it's the presence of love in our lives. That's one of the things that uniquely characterizes God's children. And notice it's not love in the abstract. It's not love for the arts. It's not romantic love. It's not benevolence towards humanity in general, though those are all good things. No, the thing that specifically marks off someone as a child of God is that they love specifically the brothers, the sisters, 
the family of God. Right? The conclusion is clear. The devil hates God's people. And so do the devil's children. God loves his people. And so do God's children. And so it's worth asking yourself, is there anyone who is loved by Christ but hated by you? Is your life characterized by a love for God's people? Now, I don't mean do you sort of generally appreciate Christianity or even do you have Christian friends, but do you love every single brother and sister in the church? If you had to demonstrate the reality of your faith, if someone said to me, okay, I hear that you say you're a Christian, can you, can you demonstrate that to me by, by showing me the way that you love your brothers and sisters in the church? Would you be able to muster any evidence in your defense? Christian love, it turns out, is necessary. The hatred is incompatible with the Christian faith, but, but Christian love is absolutely necessary, John says here. And that's our first point. Christian love is necessary. That leads us naturally, I think, then to asking the question, what does that love look like? What's the shape of Christian love? What does this essential, necessary love for our brothers and sisters look like in our lives? And you see that there in verses 16 to 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good, goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love, I'm sorry, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So how do we know what this important love for our brothers and sisters ought to look like? How do we know that we have the real thing? Well, John tells us there in verse 16, this is how we know love. He, Jesus, laid down his life for us. We see love most perfectly at the cross of Christ as he willingly gave up his life, again, as John says there, for us, in our place, as our substitute. Right, you see the contrast. What does hate look like? Well, it looks like Cain taking the life of an innocent man. What does love look like? It looks like Jesus, an innocent man giving up his life. And extraordinarily enough, this amazing, cosmic, eternity-altering love that's being held up for us there in verse 16, right? not just as an object of, of awe and worship, it turns out, but John holds it up as a model. He says, this love, it's an example to you. Jesus says, there's no greater love than that someone would lay down their life for their friends. And John says, yeah, exactly. Christian, that's what your love ought to look like. Just as he laid down his life for us, so too we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Again, this is what we've been seeing the past few weeks. Being God's child, as, as John's told us at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 3, verse 1, we are God's children now. It means reflecting his image. And here John tells us that means loving other Christians, right, the way that he does. So again, last week we saw in chapter 3 at the end of verse 10, 
right? Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. That's what we thought about last week. What we didn't talk about last week is how John finishes that sentence, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Being God's child means reflecting his image. And that means loving other Christians the way he's loved us. And so John reminds us here that that way is the way of sacrifice. God's love saw us in a terrible state, lost in our sins, condemned, without hope. And his love moved him to meet that need. The father's love caused him to send the son. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God's love moved him to meet your need. The love of the son led him to lay down his life for us. Again, John chapter 15, verse 13 that we read earlier. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Right, and in love, the Spirit of God plants that same sacrificial, need-meeting, life-laying-down love in us. The Spirit plants it like a seed. We saw last week in verse 9 of our passage. Right? God, the Spirit causes this love that God has shown us to abide in us. John says in, in verse 17 and verse 24 of our passage, God the Father loves God the Son loves by, by meeting our need, and God the Spirit places that same love in us. And so how do you know that you're one of God's children? Well, you'll love your brothers and sisters. How do you know that you're loving your brothers and sisters? John says there, verse 13, he tells us. He says, if you see your brother or sister in need, Right, it seems in this context, John's talking about a material need, right? Because he says, if you have the world's goods, right, you have the ability to, to resolve this problem, you have stuff, you have money, and you see your brother or sister in need. John says, if you close your heart against them, if you refuse to help them when you're able to help, when instead of sacrificing for them, you prefer your own interests, then John asks rhetorically, how can God's love possibly live in you? If God's love is a need-meeting love, if God's love is seen in his willingness to meet the needs of his people, if you see one of his people in need and have no interest in meeting that need, then, then what do you mean by saying you're God's child? What do you mean by saying that God's love abides in you? John says, I don't know what you mean by calling yourself a Christian. Again, this is not a new development. In verse 11, John says, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. Right? It's very likely that, that John has in his mind even the instructions that were given to Israel back in the Old Testament many centuries earlier. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, starting in verse 7, uh, the Lord spoke to the people of Israel and told them how they were to love one another as his children. He says there in Deuteronomy, if, any, if among you... Um, uh, one of your brothers should become poor in any of the towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not harden your heart. So echoes of what John's talking about in our passage. Or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. 
and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin, you shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. You see, the law of God was meant to help the people of Israel reflect the character of their God. He is a generous giver. He is a provider. He's the one who had given his people every blessing. And so the people of Israel were meant to respond to his love and his generosity by being loving and generous and open-handed with one another. In the same way, after the coming of Christ, God's people are called to respond to his sacrificial, need-meeting love by being sacrificial and meeting the needs of our brothers and sisters. Right? If God has withheld nothing from us, how can we say that we know his love if we withhold what our brother or sister needs? John summarizes there in verse 18. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. As we've seen throughout this letter, the apostle addresses the church with tender affection. He's an elderly man by this point in his life. He relates to them like a gentle grandfather. Little children, he pleads with them, let's not love in word. Let's not love in talk. That's easy. Everyone pays lip service to love. Talking about love, it costs you nothing. It reveals nothing about your character. But actually loving people, people who are different from you, people who can do nothing for you, people who perhaps are in need because of their own foolish choices, people who may not be as grateful as you think they should be, people that you might not know, people you might find hard to relate to, well, that's harder. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. And so John tells us here, it should not be so with you. Don't just talk about your love, your general benevolence towards humanity with a capital H, but he says, love truly, love in your deeds. And so what does that look like for us as a church? Well, sometimes it looks just like what John is talking about here. You've got resources. You've got money. Someone has a need, and you meet that need. Sometimes it looks like sacrificing your time. Uh, someone is lonely. Someone's hurting. Someone needs help to grow in Christ. Someone needs a friend. Someone needs a mentor. Someone needs someone who will pray with them. Honestly, I think that might be more difficult for many of us to, to love that way. So John was writing in a time where people had a lot of time and not a lot of money. Loudoun County, we have a lot of money and not a lot of time. I think, I think a lot of us would probably rather stroke a check than actually invest our lives in someone actually have to give up our free time, our comfort, our ease. But here John shows us real love is costly. 
Real love is sacrificial. Real love means meeting a need whenever you're able. So in our context, maybe real love means like coming to things like the fellowship meal or a Sunday night gathering or a, a men's retreat or a women's retreat, even if that's not your thing, even if that's not your favorite way to spend time because it'll actually provide you with an opportunity to love other people. Maybe you could talk to someone who doesn't seem well-connected in the church family. Maybe you could talk to someone who seems lonely. Maybe it means seeing the, the emails that come out from Linda Salee that alert us to a need in our midst and not just simply think, well, you know, there's a lot of people on this distribution list. Someone will take care of it. But rather see it as an opportunity to show the love of Christ to someone else. What does this love look like? It means thinking about others before you think about yourself. And listen, as we conclude here, the goal is not to scold you. Right? The goal here, John's goal, isn't to make you feel like you're not doing enough to love other people. Right? No, no doubt, we all look at this passage and we need to be corrected. Right? If you can look at the standard that John sets for us there in verse 16, the sacrificial love of Christ on the cross, if you can look at that standard and then look at your life and conclude that you're doing an amazing job, right, you're not paying attention. I know I personally have been convicted this week about a lot of ways that I can grow in my love for other people. Right? We need to allow this passage to set the culture for our church. We need to make this the sort of default expectation for how every member treats every other member. But the, the goal here, John says, is that our hearts would be assured in God's presence. John's goal is actually that you would have a deep confidence that you are his child. And brothers and sisters, that's, I think, what I see as I look at our church. Just this week, as I've been reading through this passage and, and praying uh, for the church, I, I've been reminded of a million ways that I see the love of Christ sort of made manifest in our midst. I've thought this week so many times about the different ways I've experienced love, sacrificial love from so many of you. I've thought about the, the many times I, I hear examples of members in the church quietly, without fanfare, loving one another sacrificially. Sometimes people will make a comment, and I'll be like, wait, what? That person did that for them? And you realize, like, oh, there is an amazing love being displayed without, without any sort of public fanfare. And that gives us confidence. That's how we know that we are of the truth. If we look at our church family... And if you look at your life and you see no love, well, then there should be no confidence. But John doesn't actually expect that Christians will have that experience. He expects that you will be able to see, not perfection certainly, but genuine evidence in your life of God's love flowing out of you towards your brothers and sisters. And he, he expects that that's going to actually encourage you, give you confidence as you pray, and give you joy as you love one another. So the best thing for us to do is not simply to resolve to love more and love better. Now, the logic of this passage tells us that what we need to do first is to be loved, to, be, to, to marinate ourselves in that verse 16 love, the love that Jesus showed to us on the cross. Because John expects that when that love shapes our life, when that love is what controls our emotions and determines our decisions, then, John says, we will love sacrificially. 
We will love in deed and in truth, just as we've been loved. What we need to do in order to love more is to be loved by the Lord Jesus. And there may be no better way to grow in love than to come to the Lord's table. Because it's here that we remember, that we celebrate, that we meditate on the love that the Lord Jesus showed to us by giving up his body for us, shedding his blood for us on the cross. And so let's come to the table now. Let's come to celebrate and to rejoice in God's great love for us. And let's come loving one another. But first, let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we... We delight in your love, that when you are forming us into your image, you are forming us into something so beautiful, so wonderful, so loving. We rejoice, Father, in the love that led you to send your son for us while we were still sinners. Lord Jesus, we, we rejoice in you. We, we worship you as the ultimate picture of love. There is no greater love imaginable. There's no greater love to which we could look. Holy Spirit, would you continue your loving and gracious work in us? Would you continue causing us to love one another the way that the Lord Jesus has loved us? Would you, Spirit, show us any, any vestiges of hatred in our heart? Would you help us not to be deceived, to think we're loving when we're simply loving in talk? Would you help us, Spirit, to love in truth and in deed? so that we might have great confidence. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.